Well, we return this morning to what I am sure has been an exhilarating and exciting study of this order of Melchizedek. If you weren't here last Sunday evening, um, I made the joke that, you know, Michelle tells me whenever the sermon is dry. So I kind of think of her as your faithful representative because she tells me the things that none of you would ever tell me to my face. Um, I know that it's dry. There's a reason that we're going through it. Understanding this order of Melchizedek, actually, my desire, I believe the divine desire of this inspired book of Holy Scripture, is that it illuminates for us what is actually taking place in the economy of our salvation. That is, What is taking place whenever a person is saved? What is taking place whenever Jesus Christ dies on the cross for our sins? What is taking place as Jesus Christ is resurrected from the grave on the third day as He ascends into heaven? What is taking place into heaven now in the present? Understanding this priesthood actually gives us understanding. It gives us understanding into what makes the Christian faith so great. And so, for those of you that have continued to endure, the hard part of this teaching, that is the drier part, not just the hard truths, but the parts that are dry, I think today you have some hope. Because our author is finally beginning to connect the dots. He's telling us why this new order of Melchizedek matters, why it matters that Christ is a priest by the order of Melchizedek. He's telling us why it matters that the law existed and even then why the law is changed by this new priesthood. And he tells us, as he builds to a climactic moment, that we have a better hope that is introduced. And it's through this better hope that Christians are able to draw near to God. So I admit with you, part of our study has been dry. But it answers the ultimate question, which is, how do we draw near to God? This has been the theme for God's sovereignty in choosing and electing the nation of Israel and even in choosing and electing the saints of today. This has been the theme from the very beginning in the redemption of the biblical narrative that God is not just coming to ransom those who are in the bondage of sin, but He is coming to deliver them to something greater. In the wilderness, as God traveled with the nation of Israel, He instructed them to build the tabernacle. He told them that this will be my dwelling place. This is where I will live amongst my people. I will live with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Ultimately, this is what we are being saved from in salvation, is a restored relationship with God. A relationship that has been marred by the consequences of sin in this world. What is it that we truly need? We need to know our Creator. And this is what, in fact, is promised to us. 
If you open your bulletin this morning, I believe I put something in there about the word hope. And so for those of you that have been here for quite a while, you already know that this is one of my favorite words in all of the Bible, that Christians have a hope that we can cling on to. And it's partly one of my favorite words because part of the consequences of living in this world is this word has been corrupted. The meaning of it has changed over time. When people talk about hope, generally we talk about things that we wish for, that we would like to happen, things that could possibly happen. Well, I hope that my, you know, whatever works out in my favor. This is not the sense that Christians discuss the word hope, at least it should not be. When we discuss hope, we have a greater hope, the Bible says. Are we talking about something that we simply wish for? Or are we talking about something that we are sure of? In salvation, I have a hope. Do I wish that I am possibly maybe saved, or do I know that I have been saved? When I say that I hope for the day that Christ will return to this earth, is that something that I think could possibly happen if God decides He actually wants to do it? Or is it something that I know with certainty is coming? When I say that I hope for the day that I will walk in heaven with my Lord at my side, is that something that I simply dream about to make death less scary? Or is that something I know that awaits for me on the other side? The Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It is not happenstance. It is not a... It is not a uh, a chance at all. It is expectant and certain. And it's through this order of Melchizedek that we are given a greater hope. And that through this hope that we might draw near to God. With that, by way of introduction, I would ask that you turn to Hebrews chapter 7, where we'll read our text for this morning from verses 11 through 19. And before we read, it's only right that we should turn to God and ask for Him to guide us. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for this morning and this time that the saints might gather, that we might gather to glorify You, that we might gather to sing praises to Your name, to fellowship with other believers, to worship You through the preaching and proclamation of Your Word as we turn to this, these things, that we might understand them. And Lord, we know that understanding does not come from us. It does not come from an equipped teacher, but it comes from your Holy Spirit that guides our hearts and our minds that we would be focused upon you. And so we ask, Lord, deliver us from the confusion, the busyness, the concerns of this world, of this morning and of this day, and help us to draw near to you that we would hear your word preached, that we would participate in the preaching as we consider what these words mean, not for just every Christian, but also for us. That we would know how to apply your word and truth to our life, that we might leave this place reflecting the goodness of what you have given us. Father, we pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' precious name. 
Amen. The Bible says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Thus, becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. When he becomes a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we can draw near. Let's begin looking at this passage from the beginning. We look in verse 11, and the first thing that we will observe is that perfection was not obtainable through the Levitical priesthood. Through the Old Testament law, what God gave to the people of Israel as a form of conscripted worship and purification and atonement and forgiveness of sins and all of these things, it never perfected anyone. Even when it was practiced perfectly, And by perfectly, I mean in strict observance of everything that needed to take place with the sons of Aaron serving at the altar and the people of Israel faithfully living in such a way that as soon as they knew they were unclean, as soon as they knew that they were unpresentable to God and that they were in need of salvation, when they went to the priest and they offered their sacrifices and the priest did as he was commanded to do as the Lord told Moses from the Mount Sinai and everything went perfectly according to plan, still neither that priest nor the man that came to be forgiven was perfected. In fact, this Levitical system never perfected anyone. Under it, the people only received the law. The Bible tells us that Jesus came in the order of Melchizedek. Indeed, if you've been here, you know this is the argument that the author of Hebrews has been making all the way since chapter 5. But he's not pulling this out of thin air. He's not simply going back to Genesis chapter 14 and saying, here's an obscure fact, let me tie this in as a proof for the argument that I want to make about Jesus. The Bible, in fact, King David, when writing Psalm 110, reflected on the Messiah that would come and made this claim that's quoted for us in verse 17, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So David made this connection as well. 
And we know that even if in the days of the kings, in the days of King David, if he made this claim that there would be a new order of priesthood, well, that would already imply, even in the days of David, that the law was not perfecting anyone. Well, this brings up an uncomfortable truth. An uncomfortable truth If you were here with us Wednesday night, we're going through the life of Jesus Christ, looking at His earthly ministry. And this past week, we were looking at the idea of reform. One of the questions I asked those participants in the study is, when you think of the word reform or reformation, does it carry with it the idea of something being good or bad? And I got both answers. Some people said it sounded good. Some people said it sounded bad. Well, as we dug in and we asked, well, why does reform sound like a bad word? Or why does reform sound like a good word? Well, those that said it sounded good was that meant that you were helping someone or an organization or an institution to turn around and to be better than they were before. Those who said that reform sounded like a bad word said, well, they didn't want to change. Well, it turns out the way that we think about reform depends on whether we're the ones reforming or whether it's somebody else. Human nature is so revealing. It turns out I'm a fan of reform as long as that means the world outside of me is changing to match exactly what I want. I'm not so much a fan if it means that I have to change in order to match the world I'm in. Human nature is a funny thing. We mentioned last week the problem with the Levitical system is that the people in Israel's day no longer pursued holiness and their living as they would glorify God. Rather, they viewed if they were going to worship God in an authentic way, they just needed to make sure they made enough sacrifices to cover up all the mistakes that they made. We can faithfully simplify what was taking place. I did bad things. I have to pay a price. As long as I can pay that price, I'm good to go. Well, it sounds like most Americans and their credit cards. I can be irresponsible with my money and do bad things. And as long as I can pay the minimum monthly payment, I'll be all right. This is the way the nation of Israel viewed worshiping God. This is, in fact, why God condemned them, why He said a new order was necessary. You see, there's something taking place when our sins are forgiven. First of all, there is the payment of sin. Romans 6.23 tells us plainly the wages of sin is death. All sin deserves to be paid. In fact, the day of the Lord tells us with hope, with certainty, with an expectant reality of the future, that all sin will be paid. The debt that has been incurred on our behalf is certainly going to be paid. We can say with hope and with certain expectation that our sin has been paid by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who stands as our high priest presently in heaven interceding on our behalf towards the Father. And all those who have not believed in Christ who have not placed their faith in Him, all those that do not know Him as Savior, who have not confessed Him with their mouth, well, their sins are going to be paid for too. 
with their own death. Eternal death, condemnation, the reality of hell is just as hope for and expectant as the realities of heaven. The coming of the day of the Lord will be a time when we will rejoice. For the world will be, in many senses, reset. Well, then what is this business of the Levitical priesthood? I think a conscientious person, when reading this text and they see that God has instituted these things and then He's given us a new thing, well, what was the purpose of the old thing at all? What was the purpose if there's this something to be added that we're told in verse 12, that when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well? A conscientious person should ask, well, what was God doing with this old system that never perfected anyone? Do we not believe that God does not give us anything flawed, but that what He designs for Himself is perfect, that a perfect God necessarily creates a perfect creation? This is a fundamental truth that the, in teaching of the church. God doesn't make mistakes. So what business did he have giving us the Levitical system, this priesthood that is named after the sons of Aaron? What business did he have giving us this if it never perfected anyone? I, I believe that's the question that hangs in my mind as I look at this. God, why would you change anything if you are perfect? We might, I think, foolishly say, what does it matter? I have this new system. I'd rather just enjoy it. Let me remind you, this all points to something greater. This points to a greater hope. This points to a greater reality. While reform necessarily comes in the presenting of Jesus Christ as high priest, change occurs in the law. Why does it happen? And our understanding of that question points towards understanding this greater hope that we can hang on to. You see, Jesus came with a peculiar set of qualifications that enabled him to be high priest. Verses 13 and 14 tells us that Jesus had peculiar qualifications. Verse 13 says, For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priests. You see, in Israel's day, if you've been keeping up with our Bible reading plan, you should be somewhere in the book of Numbers right now. And so you're probably familiar with this. There were 12 different tribes in the nation of Israel. Each of them had different responsibilities. The tribe of Levi, or the Levites, those descendants from Aaron, their responsibility was worshiping God in the tabernacle or in the sanctuary later. Their job was to serve at the altar and the table of God, making sacrifices and putting the people of Israel in a right relationship with God. The tribe of Judah, notably the largest tribe of Israel. They were on the east side, on the front side. 
And they were given the instruction that they were to be the first ones to set out in the camp whenever the people of Israel would leave. They were the leaders. They were the ones that if Israel came under attack, they would have been first in the line of duty to step up. They were on the east side where the sun would rise. They were a promise to the nation of Israel of something coming later. What we find is that God instituted all of these things and these instructions pointing forward to a hope that Israel, even themselves, did not fully comprehend. So then we can say the same about the law of the Levites, the law that God gave to them, the instruction and the system and the priesthood that comes with the law. God used these things as a shadow, as a shadow of something that is going to be revealed in the future of Jesus Christ who would come and be the fulfillment of these things. So Judah, this tribe that Jesus is a descendant of because of his genealogy, his earthly genealogy, no one's ever served as a priest from this tribe before. In fact, Judah seems to be the tribe from which kings would come. And we've discussed this some already too, that Christ is not just priest, but he is both priest and king. We sang this morning that we crown him priest or prophet and king. (coughs) Hail him, hail him. Is that not the truth that we believe? What was Jesus' peculiar qualification then if he came in this way, if he didn't fit into the Levitical system? Why is it that he is serving as a priest after the likeness of Melchizedek? Look at verse 16 in your text. Not on the basis of legal requirements concerning his fleshly descent or his bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Those two words are something that we can keep with us this morning. Jesus' priesthood clings to the fact that he has an indestructible life. That is, in this Old Testament system, sacrifices were necessary over and over again. But Jesus is an indestructible life. He was killed. He died on the cross. But the gospel cannot stop with the death and crucifixion of our Lord. We must go forward to remember, too, that Jesus was resurrected. When we talk about the good news of the gospel and what it is that Christians have that we possess, what we remember is not just that Jesus Christ died for payment of our sins that we deserve to pay on our own behalf, but we also remember that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the grave. Paul writes about the promise that comes from this resurrection in the fact that because Jesus Christ has been resurrected, so too we have confidence, we have expectant hope in the fact that Christians will be resurrected in the day of the Lord, that we will be resurrected to stand with God. An indestructible life. Jesus Christ is not just a priest that comes on the basis of man, but he comes, even as the author of Hebrews made the point earlier in chapter 1, he comes by the will of the Father. Not a fleshly commandment, but by God's endless life. Jesus triumphs over death. His triumph over death is the promise that Christians 
have today. Because he triumphed over death, through him we triumph over death. And not just death, but the thing that brings death. This is truly the most remarkable teaching, I believe, in all of the Bible. That Christians have the power of the Holy Spirit that not only gives us umption to proclaim God's truth to the world, but so too we have this. We have the power to overcome death in Christ Jesus. We have the power to overcome that which brings death. Christians who seek the power of the Spirit inside of them have the power to live holy lives. We have the power to not be trapped by sinfulness. We have the power. We have the ability to overcome temptation and waning. We have the ability to be holy before God if only we will seek Him. The only thing that holds us back from this is, in fact, our own flesh, which needs to be disciplined, which needs to be trained in the way of righteousness, even in our minds, that we must seek to understand God and we must equip ourselves that we would not be conformed to this world, but rather we would be transformed and renewed to the image of His Son. I told you this morning would be a little less dry. Well, let me remind you, I said less dry, not totally undry. This first part does require, especially look in verses 11 through verse 17, it requires us to understand the significance of the things that the author is talking about. These are the presuppositions that are true that we must accept. If you've bared with me this morning, verse 16 I'm sorry, verses 18 through 20. This is the less dry portion. If you've understood, if you've comprehended these more dry bits, we find the answer to the question we asked only a moment ago in saying, what was the purpose of this unperfecting law to begin with? Not only can we answer that question, but if we let our hearts understand it, we'll also understand what we have with God right now. The author writes, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. This is what the author of Hebrews, this is what the divine author, God himself, says about the Levitical law. He calls it weak. And useless. Not profitable for anything. The law made nothing perfect. The law, as I said a moment ago, acts as a shadow for us and showing us what even the people of Israel didn't understand the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, our high priest. Why did the law exist then? We can say that the law existed because it showed us, it demonstrated for us, it helps us to understand God's perfect standard of holiness. But by the law, it does not enable a man to walk with God. The law is weak and unpowerful. It cannot save a soul. The law helps us with the diagnosis of our sin problem, but only Jesus shows us the actual cure. 
I want you to consider how useful your doctor is when he tells you, I know exactly what the problem is and there is nothing that we can do to fix it. It was helpful in showing us what the problem was. But we're reminded that even doctors are human, frail, that they're unable, that they lack power, that they do not have control. Surely many of us have faced so many of these situations. The doctor is weak. And as the author talks about the law, he says useless. What good does it do in an eternal sense for somebody to walk around knowing the condemnation that they deserve? I want you to consider this. If all we had in the Bible was the law, if all we had was Romans 6.23, if all we had was the reality that because you are a sinner, because every man is a sinner, because we've been born into sin, we inherited it from our fathers, and has been passed on from generation to generation through the lineage of Adam, with the exception of one man, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, If we understand that, if we comprehend that, what good would it be that we would proclaim the gospel to anyone? If we were simply condemned, it would be useless. What good does it know that you are a sinner? It does no good. In fact, Voltaire would be right. Christianity would simply be derived to make miserable people more miserable. And it makes sense that immature Christians would run away from this doctrine of depravity. That immature Christians, in fact, would run away from it so much that even in presentations of the gospel, we would want to cling to the fact that through Jesus Christ, because he died for your sins, we'll talk about that later, I don't know what that means, but because he died for your sins, you, if you believe in him, have eternal life in Christ. Well, it's no wonder that the world doesn't understand the message that we are presenting or the word that we are proclaiming or even this whole issue of who Jesus Christ is because we have watered down the gospel and taken out the part that is difficult. This part that God put into place for a reason, not because it's useless, but because it teaches us something about Him. The law is useless. It is weak. It doesn't save anyone. It never made anyone or anything perfect. But on the other hand, He is presenting to us a better hope. That is not just understanding of the human condition. That is not just understanding of sinfulness. That is not just comprehension of how bad sin is. But it is an understanding that through that sin we have the ability to draw near to God, that we can walk with Him. Paul reflected on the issue of the ability of the law to accomplish anything using, I think, a different... Well, he approaches it differently, but he arrives at the same conclusion in Galatians 3, verses 19 through 25. The Bible says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. 
Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that it could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we are held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, and now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This is what transpires in Jesus Christ's ministry on the cross and in his resurrection, that those who have faith in him are no longer conscripted, no longer bound, no longer stuck, no longer under the guardianship of the law, but we are truly liberated in freedom. When we talk about freedom that we have in Christ or liberty that Christians may experience in Christ, it is hinged upon this, that we are able to experience liberty as we seek the Holy Spirit's guidance in our life. No longer do I need an external sense of rules and regulations that I can cram into my mind and make sure that I am obeying. No longer do I need a special sect of people whose job and life's purpose is to understand the scriptures and the law that they might be able to interpret it for my day-to-day use. But now I get to live according to the spirit that is inside of me. If I have experienced real salvation, if God is with me, if his power is enabling me to overcome sinfulness in my life, then it is by Christ not only that I get to hope and look forward to this expectant future and reality when all things will come to fruition, but it is in the present day. It is right now. It is as I live in the church that I am able to live for God, not just for him, but with him. It's not just in heaven that I get to look forward to spending in his presence, but I can experience his presence now on this side of eternity. I can glorify him in all that I do. I can seek him. I have a greater hope. Through Jesus, we have a better hope. To help us understand this, I think we should also understand that the Levitical law, all these things that we are discussing, even then, it was by faith that Israel was saved. In Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 9, Paul again writes, speaking of this law that was given to the people of Israel. He says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? He's quoting from Deuteronomy 28 here. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
Paul is saying that this formula, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, I'm sorry, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, then you're saved. This isn't something new. The formula that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 10 is a quotation coming from Deuteronomy 28 when Moses, even speaking to the people of Israel, says to them that this law, all these things that God has given us... By the way, Moses is about to leave. He's about to send the people with Joshua. Moses is no longer going to be the leader of Israel. This is what he's giving to them by the will of God. This law will not perfect you unless you have faith in your heart. Unless you confess the lordship of God over you, and unless you believe in your heart, you will not be saved. This isn't something new. And this was the problem with the Levitical system after all. You see, in order for the whole thing to work, in order for these rituals that were practiced, for the slaying of these animals to have any effect, what's taking place? First, there is the satisfaction of God's demands. Blood is spilt for payment of sin. That's part one. But here's the bigger part. If you're a sinner, then you've probably experienced the sensation of guilt at some point in your life. If you spend time around Baptist churches, we will help you to feel guilty. We're good at it. That blood has been spilt. Does that make me feel less guilty? Oh, even for Christians, this is a problem. You've repented of your sin, you've turned away from it, look to the cross, and don't feel guilty. Do you feel less guilty? I think many Christians struggle with this. This is commonplace. Because we won't grow up in our faith to understand what the Scriptures are saying and teaching us about this high priest Melchizedek that Jesus comes in a lineage of. If we'll pursue maturity in Christ, if we'll accept the exhortation that we find in Hebrews chapter 5, this is what we discover. Not only is the Levitical system flawed in that the priest could make sure that they did everything that God said. They could make the blood offering that, that um, satisfies the wrath of God that righteously exists towards sin, but he could not purify the conscience of man. The priest could do nothing to make sure that what was happening in the heart of those that he served before God were truly cleansed. This is why Moses gave Israel this instruction after all, that by faith, all of these things work. Because in this new priesthood, what we have is greater than that. Because your high priest is Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of God, when you repent of your sin and turn away from it, you can experience peace with God. You can be cleansed of your guilt. You can be at one with God. Because Jesus Christ is your high priest. You do not have to turn to that blood that leaves you wandering still in guilt. But you can leave renewed. 
Not only that, but you can leave no longer trapped by the burden of your sin. But you can repent of it and turn away from it and through His power live a life that glorifies Him. Our greater hope doesn't just exist in some far off place, but it exists today. Our greater hope is not just in what we long for in the future, but it's right now. If you want to experience how true, how real, how certain, how expectant the Christian hope is, then this is what I offer to you. I offer you real repentance. Not the priesthood of man that you might come and stand before a church or that you might make confession, but the priesthood of God. The one who is our intermediary is no other than the Son, God Himself existing in the flesh, coming to pay the penalty of sin on your behalf, no longer spilling the blood of animals and sacrifices, but His own perfect blood that righteousness might be achieved for you by faith. If you experience guilt and wandering and confusion about your faith, then I offer you this morning the same thing that the Bible offers all of us. Real atonement. Being at one with God. Father in heaven, I pray this morning that you would continue to guide us according to your word. God, I pray not only that we would have an understanding of repentance and righteousness and an eagerness to live for you and to glorify you, but God, I pray that we would have an understanding of what it is that we receive by faith through you that we receive peace. God, I pray that we would be able to experience an abundance of your peace that is established with us through the payment of your blood. God, that this morning as we stand to sing glory to your name, as we stand and we raise our voices for your pleasure, God, I pray that in our hearts we would experience real cleansing, that we would experience the lightness that comes from trusting in you the relief of the burdens being removed. God, I pray not only that we would experience, but that as we prepare to leave this place, that we would pursue you, drawing near to you because you dwell among us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.